Welcome to Champagne Problems. We are your hosts, Robbie Shaw and Patrick Balsley. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we explore our mental health, well-being, performance, and longevity, and how our relationships with alcohol can influence each. No shame, no labeling, no judgment, just curiosity. Welcome back, brilliant people. We're here at Everybody's Studios, and today we'll be speaking with Ryan Hampton. Ryan is many things, but first and foremost, he's a passionate activist working sleeplessly to reverse the crisis of addiction in this country. Ryan has written two bestsellers on the opioid epidemic. He works intimately with the White House. He travels the country relentlessly campaigning on recovery advocacy, and he contributes content to millions of people breaking down the cultural barriers that have kept people suffering in silence for way too long. If there is ever a man you want in your corner, it's Ryan Hampton. Let's go to Ryan. Ryan Hampton, welcome to Champagne Problems. It is so good to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. Of course, of course. We're we're very glad you agreed to come on. You know, we we as two guys that are both in recovery and work in this field, we we have known you and who you are and all you do for for a long time now, and we're we're honored to have you on. Oh well, I uh, thank you for that. Um, you know, I'm, it's always great to to learn about what folks are doing and you know, someone reaches out and wants to do a podcast, I'm always down. So um, it's been fun to kind of learn a little bit more about you guys and what you do. And, you know, a little bit about this podcast the last couple of weeks and uh, just excited to be here. Grateful. Yeah. Shout out to Kevin Mike Lazik for connecting us too. I've been following you for, for a while now, even, you know, before you wrote your books and I think I mean, I've been following you on, on Instagram for several years and then um and then you must like you must like dogs because that's all that i post about these days (laughs) (laughs) yes we we follow you very passionately around the dogs (laughs) no i've I've always i've appreciated your work man and and kind of your perspective on things and and just uh, i've I have a big advocacy is not something that I've been able to, you know, dip my toe in yet, but I, I really, really have a passion for it. And I appreciate all the effort and hard work you've done, man. You're fighting the good fight. And uh, I'm super pumped to hear hear what you have to share with us today. So th- thanks for coming on, man. Well, thank you. And I mean, big shout out to Kevin, too. Kevin is the great connector, you know? Yeah, yeah he's a good dude. He's like, he's like Switzerland, you know? Everybody everybody <laughs> says yes to Kevin. So. Everything runs through Kevin. Yeah. yeah. I love it. And congrats on your uh, recent nuptials. Yeah, oh, man. Oh, my gosh. I know. Thank you. I can't believe it. I mean, now I can add married man to, you know, my list of things that I that I do, but, um, I'm just happy the wedding's over. I mean, for anybody out there, I mean, getting married was great, but good. Oh my God. Like planning. I mean, like I've been able to plan a lot of things, you know, in my recovery (laughs) and advocacy events, planning a wet, I mean, planning a wedding is like a whole nother level. I mean, it was like, (laughs) you know, it was like trying to negotiate the peace accord in like world war two with like trying to figure out where people (laughs) it you know it's like insanity so thank you i'm grateful to be married too but i'm glad that wedding is over god no shit man i mean how many people get sick after their wedding weeks like i I I was like everybody everybody was like you know you guys should take you know a week off because we planned on doing um 
you know, a honeymoon later after recovery month, after all the crazy, you know, we're hitting season right now with like recovery advocacy with like legislative sessions and, you know, recovery month coming up. And I was like, no, we'll do the honeymoon in the fall when things kind of like die down. And they're like, well, you're going to take the week off. Right. And I'm like, no, we're getting married on Saturday and Sean and I'll go back to work on Monday. Everything will be fine. Well, Monday comes and I'm like, that was the <laughs> dumbest fucking thing that I've ever done. I was like, we should have definitely taken this. Week. Yeah. You got the flu oh, now. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, well, all right. Well, let's move on. Here we go. So, so Ryan, the way we like to start is is we like to hit you with some rapid-fire questions. Nothing oh, that kid. Oh, man, that, that, you didn't tell me about oh, yeah. this part. Of, yeah. co- of oh, course they're, we did They're easy. They're, it's nothing crazy. Don't worry, dude. It's nothing crazy. Easy stuff. First and, first and foremost, and always my favorite question, what was your first live music concert and where? Oh, man. You're going to make me think here on this one. First live music. Co- I mean, oh, geez, this is embarrassing. Uh, New Kids on the Block, Miami, oh, Florida, yeah. at the Miami Arena in 1989, I believe. Holy cow. Yeah. That one. That's a good one. I remember there. that. We've gotten some good ones. That's a real good one. I remember yeah, when but I will tell you, I, I have not, tour. not, I have not like, I'm not someone who's like, let's go see the NKOTB reboot because I understand the backup. That's not yes, you. Okay. That, and I actually take a step further. I was a member of the fan club too. So like, there's a lot of history there. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, we're really getting to know you here. <laughs> what food is your guilty pleasure? Pizza. Perfect. If you could know. All right. Here's a thinker. Yeah. I, this is a new one. I know. Here we go. If you could know the answer to any question, what would you ask? What's God's name? Mm. Mm. Beautiful. What book are you currently reading? Or books? Uh, so I'm reading a couple of books right now, but the, the one that I'm most into is The Hard Sell by Evan, um, uh, Evan Hughes um, uh, about the, uh, the John Capitor uh, case. Um, and, and, you know, the fentanyl company that he created. What is your favorite city or town in the world other than the one you live in? Los Angeles, California. <laughs> Love it. Love it. All right. We're done with that. We know you now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we know you very intimately. Today's episode is sponsored by Athletic Brewing Company, America's leading non-alcoholic craft brewer. Have you been thinking about cutting back on alcohol but still aren't sure if near beers are for you? Check out Athletic Brewing, the most decorated non-alcoholic brewer in the world. Athletic produces a wide selection of great-tasting brews, including IPAs, Goldens, Darks, Lights, Sours, and more. Their non-alcoholic beers have won over 70 awards and are fit for all time, so you can drink them anytime and anywhere. Now you can enjoy great-tasting craft brews all night long and still be ready for whatever life throws at you tomorrow. Right now, new Athletic customers can receive 20% off their first order when they visit athleticbrewing.com and use the code CP20 at checkout by August 31st, 2023. Let's dive in. So give us a little bit of your um, origins, uh, the origins of your passion, and that obviously will likely include your recovery journey, as we know you're on. Um so give us a little little backstory as to what led you into this space. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, I, I never uh, wanted to be a quote unquote recovery advocate or author. 
uh, nonprofit, you know, founder in this space. I mean, this was not something that, you know, growing up, I was like, I want to do that, you know, <laughs> right. um, I, I kind of refer to it as like an accidental turn in my life. You know, I'm, I'm an accidental advocate, an accidental author, accidental nonprofit founder. And I say that because like it, all of that was really, you know, a, a byproduct of my story, my experience, um, and more importantly than my experience, like the experience of just like losing a lot of people close to me who I love very much and dearly and watching them, you know, try and pull themselves out of a system that is just fundamentally broken. And um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I had a pretty promising career as a younger person in politics and government and public policy. Um, and that all came to shambles in 2003 um, after I had broken, you know, had a, had a knee injury, um, ended up in the care of an urgent care physician. And then subsequently, uh, had to move back to Florida because my father had passed away and still had this pain issue, giving you the very abbreviated version, by the way. Uh, and my, my father had passed away. So I had to come home to Florida, uh, and ended up, um, in a pain clinic. Um, and it was by referral from my primary care physician. And, while that all sounds crazy, like back in 2003 and 2004, we just didn't know what we know today. I mean, we had no idea. And um, the doctor that I was seeing, um, you know, the first time she was like, oh, you're on, you know, this pain medication. Uh, I was on Dilaudid at the time. And, and I hadn't like, experienced any of like the, the, the negative consequences at that point in my life that come with full-blown substance use disorder. But this doctor I saw at the pain clinic was like, you know, taking that too much is, is, going to be bad for your liver. And, you know, you're having to take it every couple of hours. Like I, there's this new medication on the market. You know, you only have to take it once every 12 hours and, you know, the, the likelihood of, of developing any type of like addiction or, um, you know, mental um, dependence is less than 1%. It's super safe. And it's called Oxycontin. Why don't you try it out? And Jesus. So I, um, you know, and that, that that's, that's how it started for me, but I'll tell you like my journey into, like full-blown addiction was not protracted. It was within a year, you know, from that first visit that I was doctor shopping, it, you know, mm -hmm. that tolerance was high, um, that I lost my first job. I lost my health insurance. It was within two years. I had my first bout of homelessness, you know, within two years that I had, uh, you know, my first, uh, run at treatment, uh, in South Florida. And, um, the interesting kind of nexus of my story and why it really kind of went south very quickly was um, South Florida where, where I was based, which was Broward County and was living at the time, um, which was really home for me. Um, it, that was just, it was, it was the nexus. It was like the perfect storm. I mean, yeah. there were more pain clinics uh, um, then there were McDonald's and seven 11s combined. And that's not an, an exaggerated statistic. So it's oh, like every, wow. and I can remember back to those days of like the mid two thousands, you know, losing my car, losing everything I had, but like still needing to get to these pain clinic appointments. Cause it was the only way I could function like the small, like odd jobs I was able to pull. Like if I didn't have my medicine, I wasn't working. Right. Like I was like on some couch somewhere dope sick. And mm -hmm. I remember they didn't have Uber back then. We had taxi cabs. We still have taxi cabs today, but nobody uses them. But like, <laughs> like taxi cabs was like the only way to get around like sans taking the public bus. 
And so when I was able to take a cab, I'd call a cab to like, come get me to take me to my doctor's appointment. And I can remember on multiple occasions, like it was so the norms were like, so stretched during this time. I remember having taxi cab drivers being like, Oh yeah, I know that place you're going to like Dr. So-and-so, but like do you <laughs> something now, like I, and like having like the bottle of Roxy's like right up there, in like their center console, I can remember going to like public oh markets and like buying bread and milk and like people walking around in the supermarkets and like, you know, a little jink, it's not a key, key changing, oh, you yeah. know, the sound oh, yeah. going on in someone's pocket. Like everybody was on pills, you know? Oh, my God. And, and, um, it was just kind of like accepted, but all that came like crashing down on me in 2009, when I showed up to a doc, one of my doctor's offices in Florida had just instituted the PDMP, this database tracking for, you know, who's seeing what doctors, how many pills they're being prescribed, what the prescriptions are for, because the state of Florida had this really great idea that if we just cut people off, right who are like not abiding by the rules yeah, fix are, everything. you know it will fix everything right like we're just gonna cut off the supply everything's gonna be fine well that's what happened to me i got thrown out of a doctor's office and told i was a junkie and if i ever came back i was gonna be arrested mind you like this was a doctor who was essentially using with me i mean mm -hmm. got high together multiple times but the doctor was concerned with their ass and their license and all that good stuff and i got cut off and um, walked outside that pain clinic and, uh, I wasn't the only one. I mean, it felt like there were thousands of us on that block getting cut off at the same time and heroin was there. And it was like, yeah. Hey man, like you're sick. You need something. Here's something a lot cheaper. Try it out. It's going to get you well. And here's my number. And, um, you know, to, to cut a long story short, you know, that kicked off just this downward spiral of, overdoses in hospitals and, you know, just mm. really losing connection and, 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 and like any, any like semblance of like family support systems that I had at the time. And, um, a very scary time for me, you know, fast forward though, you know, I ended up moving out West, um, cause I thought that would fix everything and it was did not. Um, but I moved to California to Los Angeles um, I had gotten about a year under my belt in South Florida because I had accessed a public treatment center down there uh, in 2012. And in 2013 said, hey, I'm fixed. You know, I've got a year under my belt. I'm going to move out to Los Angeles where all dreams are made. And um, I'm going to start over there. And I was in LA for, you know, about three months uh, with zero support system, um, you know, not attending any type of recovery support meeting had completely broken away from any, any type of connection I had with 12 step back in South Florida, uh, and ended up back in the same place, but worse, um, where I was you know, at the tail end of it, ended up homeless on Hollywood and Highland, you know, basically panhandling to be able to get a, a daily dose. And, um, my mom thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. I was actually okay with dying. Um, and, um, I, uh, you know, I, there was something that came about me. I wouldn't call it a spiritual experience at the moment, but it was more of like, I'm sick of tired of being on the street. I'm hungry. I need a roof over my head. Thanksgiving is coming around. Wouldn't it be nice to be like, get a reprieve. Um, and I knew that because I had this, you know, debilitating heroin addiction, 
um, that I could probably get into a public center. And, you know, I kind of saw it as like a hotel stay. I had no, no desire to get clean. I had no desire to, to get better. I just wanted a roof over my head and something to eat. So I called this treatment center every single day from a payphone on Hollywood and Highland every single morning for 30 days to see if there was a bed. And on the eve of Thanksgiving, 2014, uh, the, the person on the other end said, yes. And uh, I jumped a cab, had no money. I jumped a cab. I probably still owe that cab driver money now that I'm thinking about it, but I jumped a cab <laughs> to get there, um, checked in, was in treatment for about three and a half months, uh, went into a sober living uh, that, uh, and, but I also had no intention. Like when I went in to stay clean, um, something happened while I was there. I was put on medication. I was put on buprenorphine, um, which saved my life. I, I stayed on buprenorphine, also known as Suboxone, um, for about four months, um, and then you know steadily weaned off of it. That was my story, um, but it kept me in my seat uh, when I went mm -hmm. times, and uh, I truly believe saved my life and and got into a sober living and, you know, was driving Uber. And I thought like, this would be great if I just drove Uber and was able to pay my bills. And um, in uh, 2016, my roommate died of an overdose. And um, that was the moment that I decided I needed to do something more. Um, it wasn't my story as much as it was Nick's story. And then after Nick, Greg, and about three dozen other that came after that sure. in the last two mm -hmm. years. And, but when Nick died, he was, he went to a hospital and he was told like, he didn't have a severe enough condition for them to help him. And he died actually walking back to our sober living. He used one more time and overdosed. And we found his body about two blocks from our house slumped over on the sidewalk and the sober living Jesus. manager said this is what happens like you know in order use this cliche like so you know in order for people to recover you know some people have to die and i just thought that was complete bullshit um and i thought you know something's not right here you know a hospital like one of the best hospitals in southern california told my friend they couldn't help him and then i'm being told on the flip end that this is just what happens and yeah. i just to swallow it and, um, that that's really where it all kicked off right when i say accidental advocate it was that summer you know i traveled the country um it was a year later that i wrote american fix which was just about i mean it i didn't intend for it to be the book that it ended up being but it ended up doing really well and a lot of people resonated with it um founded the voices project shortly after that and started mobilized recovery in 2019 and the recovery advocacy project and you know, these efforts um, have all been geared towards leading people towards finding their own purpose and their own passion uh, in the recovery movement and the recovery space, and then supporting them um, to, to be the creators, to be the doers, to be the advocates, to be the activists, to get involved, um, to push for more meaningful, you know, um, compassionate policy that addresses people where they're at, uh, with substance use disorder, you know, pushing for equitable care to uh, evidence-based treatment, you know, more uh, involvement of peers, you know, building a robust peer workforce in the United States of America, which we don't have, you know, fighting insurance companies left and right on parity uh, that's violated every single day, which is, you know, you want to talk about murderers and cartels, you know, the insurance companies are worse than most drug dealers out there that I know. 
um, and, and should be held accountable. So, I mean, like I, I found a lot of people out there who felt the same way I did, and we just needed to build an infrastructure around this. And I certainly didn't end up where I'm at today, you know, overnight. It's been a series of moments in my life, um, for, you know, most notably over the last eight years, you know, that have led me to take a right turn or a left turn um, and, and, and just a series of like organizing moments um, that we've continued to build on. And, it, and it's by no means all me, right? Like, I mean, there are, you know, thousands of members of the Mobilize Recovery Network and a team at Mobilize Recovery and the Voices Project of about a dozen people who work their tails off every single day. You know, I just happen to like to write about this stuff and to create and to, you know, build partnerships where I can. And, um, you know, it's my hope though, that through this work, that like the next Ryan and like the next Courtney and the next Garrett and like all the people who've been involved in this work are, are, are coming in and learning and building, but are going to do it better than even we've done it. Right. Like I want to like put ourselves out of business, like badly, you know, and that should be, if it's not all of our goals that are involved in this movement to put ourselves out of business, then we need to be doing something different. I got a million questions going through my head. Um, you know, some that I've wanted to ask you for a long time, but um, in the sake of time, um, some of the things that I, I want to know, where are we gaining the most traction? Like, where do you see the most amount of hope in terms of systemic change? Great question. Where I see the most amount of hope, where I get my hope, my agency, because this work is not easy, as you guys know, like there are days when you're like, I need to go like serve ice cream for a living or something. Yeah. This is like super depressing. Enough moral injury. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like I, I have to constantly search for hope and like signs of hope. And I'll tell you like where I always find it, not nine times out of 10, but 10 times out of 10 is in peers. It is in people with lived experience people in recovery, people who love people in recovery, people who care about recovery, who are not doctors or scientists or politicians who are stepping up to the plate and getting involved. Now, it could be as simple as telling their story for the first time, starting a nonprofit, becoming a community provider, starting a treatment facility, starting a sober living, but it's people who are closest to this problem who are saying, I now want to be part of this solution. Because if the numbers, if and I'm a math person, I'm a movement building type person. If you look at the numbers, the math is on our side, right? Just pure data, right? One in three American households impacted. 23 to 26 million people living in long-term recovery in the United States. Like that's a lot of people, right? Like that's a huge impacted population. How is systemic change made? How is like radical, disruptive change made? It's when the people who are mostly impacted rise up to become part of the solution. It's not when some big university steps in and says, hey, we're going to create some $300 million endowment. It's not when the federal government says we're going to go from, you know, $500 million to $700 million in funding. It's not when states say we're going to sue all the opioid manufacturers and there's going to be billions of dollars to solve this problem. No, because none of that is sustainable and none of that is enough, right? Like we need people who are like stepping up to the plate, finding their talents and then acting on them. For some of us, it's advocacy. For some of us, like you guys, it's storytelling. For some of us, 
you know, it's direct service. It's using our business acumen to create something that our community needs, right? Like we all have a part to play. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's running for office and getting involved and talking about recovery is an electoral issue, right? But I know that we don't need all 23 to 24 million people to like raise their hand and say, I care about this issue and I want to get involved. We need a couple thousand of them. Like I'm telling you, like, like radical disruptive change could be made with just a sliver of that number getting involved. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look at the history of movements, right? Look at the gay movement, look at the healthcare movement, look at the civil rights movement. You think when AIDS and HIV was a massive public health concern in the seventies and the eighties, that every single gay person in America, like got involved and took to the streets or, you know, tried to create, you know, create a, a new community healthcare program to treat people with HIV AIDS. No, it literally was 2000, about 2000 people who got involved on the West coast and in New York wow. city who changed the game for everyone, right? Like they changed it for everyone. That's where we are with the recovery movement, right? We're like at that tipping point where yeah. we are going to get there. And, and you know, it, it's important yeah. to me and I think it's important to, to you and to folks who, who do this work every day that these agendas, these policies are being led by our community. I am so sick and tired of having a doctor or a professor tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. I ask them, I say, how many overdoses have you reversed, Mr. PhD alphabet soup next to your name? Like how many nights have you spent on a street corner trying to mentor or provide peer support to someone who doesn't have a meal or a place to sleep at tonight, right? How many calls do you take a day from people who have their insurances run up or they can't get themselves on the Medicaid quickly enough, or they can't find a facility that takes Medicaid because until you've done that, shut the fuck up. That's mm. how I love it. Brother. Love it. All right. I got to, all right, let me get in here. Let me get in here. Um, so I just want to make sure I frame this right. So I, my wife is a physician and we, we consistently talk about a lot of the, the, you know, American culture, shoot, worldly cultures, uh, societal issues, population issues, you know, call it obesity, call it all kinds of different things. And there's, there's the treatment of the, the issue. And then there's the, the treatment of what's causing the issue. And I would love to hear your take on, you know, listening to what you're saying right now and, and everything you just said, I almost feel like there's people, there's a school of thought that thinks that there's a, there's a whole different method of prevention and, 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 and likely They've already been trying this for years and years and years, the dare and all that kind of stuff, which clearly doesn't work. Is it what you're talking about? Is that going to be the prevention? Well, I mean, let's just like, you know, put all the cards on the table. I mean, you brought up you brought up something really interesting, which is like how America treats this problem, this public health problem. And then there's the rest of the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like how we got ourselves into where we're at today is uniquely American, right? I mean, it is uniquely right, American. Right, right. And how we're treating it is also uniquely American, right? Like there's an American model here that yeah. we just mm -hmm. can't seem to like fight our way out of a paper bag on like our best day, right? And that's that we continue even on the prevention side. I mean, we talk about prevention. Primary prevention is so important, but the way that prevention 
has been dealt with in the United States for decades now is just let's scare the shit out of kids and hope we scare them out of ever, ever using drugs. We, we're not very good at providing like real evidence-based facts, right? We like to kind of gloss it over with McGruff yep. or like the new thing that I'm seeing the DEA doing is they're having uh, agents dress up yep. in these hazmat suits as like their new, their new, um, uh, uh, gimmick, right. When they give these school talks. So it's like no longer, uh, McGruff, right. It's like some scary dude in a hazmat suit to like, tell you about how awful fentanyl yeah, is. Don't get I mean, too close to like the fentanyl. Bizarre, right. And, but we, <laughs> yeah. we've seen like programs that have been piloted up at like Penn state, right. Like, um, keeping it real. Um, we've seen some pilot programs in the state of Wisconsin, like the, the same model, that works for us adults and young adults will work for kids. And that means embedding peers into these schools. Like how do we start like developing a peer yeah. workforce, yeah. right? That is working within schools. Like nobody wants some like 55 year old cop coming in or DEA agent coming in and like telling you what you need to do with your life, but maybe like a college student or a high school student, or even a middle school student who can be a trained peer. That's like working with these kids. That's how you do it. Because at the end of the day, when that decision comes down of like, am I going to like take that hit? Am I going to take that pill? Am I going to take that drink? Am I going to like have that pressy you know, it's not the cop, it's not the teacher, it's not the counselor who's around, who's around, or even that the kid's most comfortable talking to. Like we know this empirically through data and like research that's been done for 20 years, right? Who is it? It's like the kid, it's the kid, it's the peer, it's like the friend, right? Like we need to be normalizing those discussions and those peer supports. And I think yeah. you'll see, we could be light years ahead in terms of prevention. Now, when it comes like beyond prevention in terms of treatment, right? And yeah. in terms of like a harm reduction model um, and in terms of like, how do we provide a continuity of care once someone gets out of treatment? Like, I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall constantly trying to explain this, um, you know, to healthcare systems and to insurers that like, you know, we, we can look at Portugal, right? Like we can look at Switzerland, we can look at even, you know, certain things that they're doing in Canada and see, you know, what's working and what's not working. I can tell you that like most of everything we're doing here in the United States is not working. And I believe it's evidenced in just the pure like overdose data that we see. It's evidenced in the fact that the treatment gap in this country has remained stagnant, stagnant for 15 years you know, less than 10% of people who need treatment are ever able to, um, uh, uh, to, to access the medical supports that they need. Um, you know, so they're, you know, I, I, I don't want to say let's like burn the whole system to the ground and rebuild it. But in certain respects, like some of that needs to actually happen. Um, you know, we're, we're at a point where unless yeah. we do something radically different, um, it's going to continue to get worse. And where my frustration as an advocate comes in is like, we've seen opportunities. Like I spent two years negotiating that Purdue Pharma settlement, right? In that bankruptcy, but more than that, you know, probably four years total working on this opioid litigation, looking at $50 billion combined, you know, coming down to states um, uh, to address SUD. And what are these states doing with the money? They're putting it in the exact same places and things they've been funding for three decades. And it's like, yeah. what Building are we fucking doing? fucking libraries. You, you know, the other yeah. thing is, is 
that drives me crazy is I am, you know, for eight years now, since I've been in recovery, surprise, surprise, an American taxpayer. I pay my taxes. I pay way too much in taxes probably, right? And I think everybody probably pays too much in taxes, but I pay taxes <laughs> to my state. I pay them to the federal government. You're like, don't tell me that this $50 billion in the opioid settlement money is the only money that we can use to abate this crisis. I may pay taxes as a taxpayer for these services. You should be providing them to my community for the services that I'm paying as a taxpayer with or without this opioid litigation settlement. So yeah, yeah. I have a lot to say about that stuff. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. I could listen to you all day, man. In terms of the prevention side, um, you know, just I, I've been fascinated with this, like, you know, how, how do we stop throwing gas on this fire? Like, I, I, just, I had a conversation with somebody this morning with a clinician, and um, he was just asking, he was talking about, you know, suicide rates in, in teens and young adults and how he just didn't remember it you know, being this bad when we were kids. And and I, I just, I feel like, I don't know, I guess I, I subscribe more to like the cultural model, model of addiction and, and kind of how it's just embedded in our culture. Um, so even if we could go back, like in terms of prevention, what, what kind of policies do you think we need in order to, to have people get their needs met so there's not so much of a desire to, you know, anesthetize ourselves. Yeah. Why are we so unhappy? Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I mean, these are, these are big questions, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and um, I think a lot of folks have looked at it through a very simple, like try to try to simplify. Yeah. Know, close the borders. Like, yeah. Close <laughs> the borders or, you know, uh, or funding for curriculum or, you know, we need, we need two cops instead of one cop, you know, to like, <laughs> more guns, two school resources instead of one school resource. Officer, you know? Jesus. But I mean, really, I mean, what, what we're talking about here and sadly the problem's getting worse, right. Is we have like this yeah. epidemic of loneliness and isolation yep. amongst our youth. And then you layer on top of it, like, you know, generational like cycles of poverty, right? That we can't lift people out of, right? These families mm -hmm. that we're able to lift out of, um, you know, access to, you know, basic, having basic needs met, like, you know, food, water, healthcare, job services, you know, daycare, you know, I mean, there, you know, folks like to say like, you've got, you know, all of society's problems over here in one bucket, and then you've got addiction in this other bucket. And I'm like, well, no, they're, they're one in this. Yeah. Right. Like we're never going to be able to like pull ourselves out of this unless we start to address things like, you know, income uh, inequity, uh, poverty, access to food, access to healthcare, access to job training. Um, you know, because these kids are are growing up in an environment that is just hyper hopeless through, you know, TikTok, and, you know, they're finding their community online because they're so disconnected from the rest of the world. And they're disconnected with what's going on in their own roof because their parents can hardly keep their head above water, you know, um, when it, when it comes to just, you know, basic, simple needs. And so how do we solve that? That is like the million dollar question. Right? Come on, Ryan. Tell us no, how. I mean, I think I think there's 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 some good proposals that are out there, and I don't want to like. I mean, I think it's it's well known. I I 
you know, I am a, a true blue Democrat. I have very progressive values, um, but I also am very bipartisan when it comes to, you know, addressing overdose and addiction. And I've worked with yeah. tons of Republicans and Democrats, and I've seen both parties have great ideas and both parties have really bad ideas. But at the core value of it, like, you've got to have universal health care. Like, people have got to have health care one way or another. We have to be able to be able to care for these kids, these babies, and their families. Like, we have to provide health care to folks. We have to have a way for people to make a living wage, right? To pull them out of poverty, or else we're just going to continue adding to this generational cycle that is killing people, right? I mean, there's some like real basic things that need to be done. Medicaid, for example, you know, I'd be dead without Medicaid today. States that aren't 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 embracing Medicaid expansion, but say that they care about the overdose crisis as like a top issue, like that's like a direct conflict. How can you like care about ending overdose but be against uh, expanding Medicaid uh, in your state? Because yeah. like newsflash, need help don't usually show up like on a street corner with like you know gold PPO from like Anthem. Like usually you'd be lucky to like get them to go into like a welfare office and help them sign up for Medicaid, you know, if yeah. you become that focused enough. Um, and we have to, you know, I think everything that's going on right now, I, I saw this just fascinating, but also really bad and, and disheartening study um, that came out in the New York Times just over the weekend that something like only 27% of Americans believe that building community is 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 important right and that's down yeah, from that's like a 90, problem that's down from like in the low 90 percents in like 1998 right oh um, my god and and a lot of this is being driven huh. by the millennial kind of under 30 age group right um mm -hmm. we have to find a better way to connect with them right we, and, and the way we do that is we've got to build community you know, that's not just online, but offline too. Yeah. Um, even yeah. myself, I mean, I'm, you know, 42 years old. I got pretty used to the Zoom rooms during COVID uh, for my recovery support meetings. Um, you know, I've, I've stuck to, a, a, you know, I, I work fully virtually these days and um, I have to, I have to find ways to like get out of the house and get into the community. Like I've been traveling more, I've been spending more time with our, you know, covering community organizations and like going to in-person meetings, but like as great as technology is, um, it is not a substitute. I'm sorry for like real human interaction. Like it's great. God, no. It's great. If like, that's all you've got, it's definitely better than nothing, but there's something about like being in a room with somebody and like, you know, sharing that, that space and sharing that energy and like, you know, having a hand on your shoulder, giving someone a hug, like, you know, having a face-to-face -face conversation. Like I, 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 I'm scared that like we're entering this world that becomes more and more virtual and like we're robbing people of, you know, some real basic necessities for like human growth um, that, 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 that cannot, no matter, or cannot ha happen in a Zoom room. It can't happen with, you know, a metaverse or virtual reality. It's just not the same thing. No, it's not. And I can speak to that personally. I've got a 13-year-old daughter. I think they'd be okay with me sharing this, but we're battling anxiety right now. We're battling panic attack, like full-on panic disorder. Um, not even anxiety, like can't leave the house type stuff. And we are pretty lenient with technology. And 
as we've entered this kind of window of struggle and we go out into, you know, our network and start talking about it and trying to get other people's responses. And I, I mean, it's almost like nine out of 10 people you speak to says, yeah, my kid has the same thing. Yeah, we're dealing with the same thing. And you wouldn't know this because we're all doing it behind closed doors, but there's a problem with sitting inside and texting, you know, 50 people at one time when in your brain you think you're being, you know, an, an extrovert and you're, you're getting connection and you're talking to all these people and you've got all these friends, but you're doing it inside. And to your point, Ryan, it is clear evidence that that is the in this scenario, that is the problem. It is. It is, one of, it is, it is it, I wouldn't say it's the the problem. I say influence. it's the top list of like the top three, maybe even sure. the top two. But like, it makes you wonder. I mean, I don't know how old you guys are, but I think about it. I was talking to Sean, my husband, just last night about this. I was like, you know, I'm 42. How the hell did I get to 30? Like, how did I even get to 15? Like, how did I survive before I even got to college? Because you know what? I didn't have a cell phone. There was no Facebook. There, no, there was Thank no social God. media. There was no Twitter. There was no metaverse. There was no internet, for Christ's sake. I mean, I didn't even have access to internet until my second year in college, right? Like, I mean, it was there, but it wasn't like, like we didn't, our homes weren't plugged into it. Like, how did I develop as a human without it? Because it feels like today, Without it, you can't continue as a human. Does that make sense? You know, it's it, do, like it does. It on. does. It does. And but when you when you take it down to the core of a human, such as someone who's thirteen or below, who doesn't necessarily need maps to get places or or apps to pay bills. You know, I watch. I took my daughter on a bike ride after she couldn't leave the house, and I mean, within twenty minutes, everything changed. It's like. <laughs> you, you get them just, out and it's like, it's oh like, my God, oh my the God. world. Yeah, it all exists. of a sudden my, my panic is gone. My yeah. anxiety is gone. I'm, I'm talking and I'm smiling. Same thing with whereas, my kids. I mean, it's just, it's night and day with the young kids and their brains are developing with this stuff. It's just scary. It's specific to like the cause at hand and like SUD, substance use disorder, addiction, you know, high risk kids right where there's like a like a higher propensity that they may grow up like with the same issue mom or dad had or or develop a you know substance use disorder on their own um i i think one of the most effective things that i've seen in my travels and in my research and my writing and advocacy is really the emergence of these recovery high schools right that just embrace mm. this peer model it's like Okay, we all we all as a group have a problem. I mean, these are these are solutions though that have been around. Like this is this is I know like you know AA and NA and twelve steps and Bill Wilson and the history of that and you know um, um, you know being around since the '30s this model. But like you know the the concept of let's take a bunch of people who have a common problem and put them together to like work through it together is something that has been utilized since biblical days. I mean, these are like, right. these is this, this concept of like what we can't do alone, we can do together has been around since the beginning of time. And like why we wouldn't be adopting that even today is beyond me. Right. But it's something mm. that if we can needs to be done collectively community-based and in person yeah 
Yeah, yeah I'm pretty involved. We got a recovery high school here. It's the coolest shit I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, Pat- um, Patrick's on the board at, at North Carolina's only recovery high school. Oh, Emerald. Emerald. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very familiar. Big fan. Hey, yeah. Ryan, have you ever heard of Soundcheck? I have not. It's a it's a, a group out of uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and it's a buddy I grew up with, and it's all uh, peer-led prevention type stuff inside of uh, high schools up there. So they'll pull kids out of different, uh, you know, sp- sports teams and, and drama clubs and math clubs, and they will train them on how to take these conversations back yeah, into funny. their groups. Really? Are you guys, are you guys based in North Carolina? Yeah, we're in Charlotte. Yeah. Okay. So, um, totally going off the rails here for a second, but like North Carolina is, that's like, it's like trauma central for me, by the way. <laughs> me too. Um, me too. I, spent, <laughs> I spent in like the height of my use in 2007, 2008 by, I, cause I was living in Florida somehow made my way to Bisco, North Carolina, Bisco. which you've never heard <laughs> no. of it. Exactly. Right? No, you live there. You even know where Bisco is. Bisco is like 30 or 40 miles east of Albemarle. Al- Al- they got Al- a lot of meth. Oh, just, just. Uh, well, I got stuck <laughs> in a trailer. <laughs> Let's just leave it there for about a oh month. Oh my God. Okay. In Bisco. And, uh, yeah, east man, of Albemarle. I, I haven't. I haven't been back. That must since. be near like. Well, you got to come visit, dude. Well, I'll you can come hang out with us. We'll drive out and see if the trailer's still there. <laughs> yeah, Revisit some trauma. Listen, it was a it was a trailer park, a Walmart, and a Mexican restaurant. That's all you all need. There was with sounds about right. So, it's east of Albemarle. Sounds like uh, Pinehurst, Fayetteville. You know the the Sand yeah, Hills. Yeah, it was like in between Fayetteville and Albemarle. Oh, yeah, it was. It's it burly was, out um, there. That was burly. That, that was King Kong. All right, dude. Where are you headed, man? What What can we expect? What's coming down the pipe for you? Oh man, we uh we got a lot going on. Um, Mobilize Recovery 2023 is launching um in in just about uh, a week. Uh, I don't know when this airs, but I'd say the week of April 17th. I uh, encourage anybody listening check it out. MobilizeRecovery.org. All of the details. Uh, for 2023 will be up there. Um, it's going to be a, a hell of an experience this year. We're incorporating uh, big brands, uh, 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 recovery advocates, community organizations, government agencies. Uh, iHeartMedia is a huge partner. Meta is another huge partner, but there's going to be some several, uh, several very big moments for the recovery movement uh, throughout September. We'd love to have people involved. If you're thinking about recovery advocacy, if you think you care about this issue, you don't know what to do, whether it's start a podcast, tell your story, start a community organization, be part of a community organization, you know, uh, uh, help impact change in your local community. I'll tell you, uh, Mobilize Recovery is, is where it starts for a lot of people. It is free. Um, you know, there's a short application process, but would love folks to to join us at uh, mobilizerecovery.org. And, and on a personal note, I'm in the middle of uh, writing my third book. Uh, it'll be coming out uh, fall of 2024. So uh, stay tuned on that, but it's gonna be talking a lot more about uh, the current day uh, crisis uh, through the scope of fentanyl uh, and what we need to be doing as a, as a country, as a community uh, to pull ourselves out of it. Mm. Sweet. Mm. All right, two more questions. 
What are the three biggest benefits you've received from removing drugs and alcohol from your life? Purpose, family, uh, and community. Uh, I did not have a purpose before uh, uh, getting out of, uh, out of, out of addiction for me. And lo and behold, it was in front of me the whole time, which is what, which was just helping the next person that had the same experience of me family. Uh, I've never experienced, uh, the relationships with my family, uh, that I've had in the last eight years. Um, and my family, when I say my family, it's not just my birth family, it's my chosen family, uh, and community. Um, I, I didn't even know what that word meant. Uh, until I, I, I got sober and I got into recovery and my community today is beyond my wildest dreams. Mm. Lovely. Well, some of those answers might overlap with this final question, but Ryan Hampton, why do you care so damn much? Oh man. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but I'll tell you at the heart of it. Um, I want, what I, what I work towards and, and what I care about and, and the things that I fight for, God forbid anything were to ever happen to me, I want them to be available to me. Um, and I want someone to fight for me like I fight for them. Um, and on the second, on the second note to that, um, I, I just can't, I, I, I can't watch what's happening uh, to people I love continue to happen. Um, it's wrong, it's immoral, it's not who we are as a country. Um, and we have to, when, when we see something that's wrong, we need to stand up, uh, and we need to call it what it is and we need to try to change it. I really appreciate you being here, taking the time. Thank you guys. And, uh, yeah, I, I might take you up on that offer to North Carolina. Dude, come on, man. We'll uh, go out to Bisco and see what's cracking. Get away from Bisco. Okay. <laughs> see what's cracking. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. Visit Patrick Balsley's practice, saunacounseling.com, Robbie Shaw's practice, eventiderecovery.com, or visit theblanchardinstitute.com.